What's up, guys? Welcome to the Social Bamboo Podcast. Today, I am joined by Jacqueline and Mina of the Product Boss Podcast. This is an amazing podcast. I've actually uh, been in touch with a lot of podcasters in the past, and I've been on a lot of shows and done a lot of podcast swaps. And these were the first two that uh, was actually a much bigger show than mine. So it was really cool. I got to the end of the episode. I was like, how big is your show, by the way? And their downloads are way bigger than Social Bamboo. So you know that they got great content over there. That is testament enough. So definitely check out that podcast. But today we are going to get into a lot of stuff. I got a ton of questions as far as e-commerce goes, uh, but they're not just e-commerce. They also do product-based uh, businesses of any kind, uh, brick and mortar. So whether you want to get into products or uh, you're already doing it, I think you're going to get a lot of value out today out of today's show. So to start off, I'm going to talk to you one at a time. We already went over this probably best. Uh, Jacqueline, how are you? Hi, this is Jacqueline. So you can recognize my voice. And I'm one of the co-founders of the Product Boss, the Product Boss podcast. And we are also the founders of the Shop One in Five Pledge, where we ask people to make one in five of their purchases from a small business online or offline. Um, so we're really excited to be here. You know, we support physical product-based business owners. So, you know, in a world and sea of service-based coaches and podcasts and courses and, and one-on-one coaching, we really saw that there was a gap in the market to support people who made physical goods. So that could be anything from candles and jewelry to furniture, um, baked goods, you know, restaurant type things like we help across the board. So if you have a physical product, whether you're a maker, you manufacture it, even retailers that buy wholesale and then resell to their customers. Um, we are just experts at organic growth. We really teach about organic marketing, organic growth, grassroots, bootstrapping it yourself. Um, we're definitely not those coaches out there that are like, go source this product in China, get it on a website and sell, sell, sell. That's not us. We really like to integrate holistically the um, life goals that each individual has. So we each have a different goal. We each have a different amount of money that would make us feel wealthy or successful. We each have different um, VIPs, very important people in our lives that we, or pets that we want to spend or plants actually that we want to spend time with. Um, and so we just really try and help physical product-based business owners find their best path to profit and have a business that leads to their dream life and everything that they've imagined. So how did you two meet each other? Uh, it, did you two, like you basically both met at a business conference. This is my guess. And then one nope. of you is like, Hey, nope. this is my stance was- on products. And it was it was literally uh, an online romance. <laughs> That's Mina's voice. So, yeah, right. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm Mina. I'm the other half of Jacqueline. The other half of the brain is what I like to say. But we literally met online. I know that feels weird. You know, it felt weird at that time, but now it's really, really common. So, you know, being the introvert of the duo of us, um, I would first and foremost, just tell you to put yourself out there because we met simply because uh, Jacqueline heard my name on a different podcast. Um, they were talking about how I have my other business. We also have other businesses. I have a um, an Amazon business, essentially, that I sell labels on Amazon and the, the podcaster- it's called Little yeah, Labels. Yeah. It's a huge business where they're labels that you label baby bottles for daycare and, you know, just and you schools get to and them. camps and they're waterproof, dishwasher proof, all the things you label your everybody, every mom and dad that has to label things for daycare and school is like, yes, I totally get it. Everybody else is like, has tuned me out at this time. So, you know, it's really useful um, for when you need to label things for school so you don't lose them and for daycare. And um, so somebody had mentioned my um, my background in Amazon because I was in deep on Amazon and really that makes up a lot of our business and we have a pretty big business on Amazon. And then Jacqueline's ears pinged during that time. She's like, oh, I'm going to find her. We happened to be in the same six figure and above uh, women's group at that time online. And she reached out to me and asked me, do you, you know, do you want to meet for like a virtual coffee or something? And, um, and can I pick your brain about Amazon? So it kind of started there as a friendship, um, which by the way, I told her not to try to liquidate, you know, at this time she was in a transition, um, liquidating products. So before anybody goes and jumps onto Amazon, tries to liquidate a whole bunch of stuff, I want to pull you back from that. Um, but it just really started as a friendship and we would talk a lot about product. We realized we had the same love language of product business and we hit it off. And that was, you know, somewhere around like five years ago. And we started a business before we even 
I mean, before we even met each other for a second time, literally. We, um, we both live in two, I, I'm, I was by coastal between LA and New York. Mina lives in Iowa. So the very first time we met each other was I was hosting a panel at the LA textile show. And I said to Mina, I was like, Hey, do you want to come in and be on this panel? Talk about being on Amazon. And should we pitch a mastermind at the end and just see if people will pay us for it? And but we had been talking for like a few, you know, for like five months at that point, but never met in person. And my brother was like, mm-hmm. are you going to get catfished? I was like, no, no, I swear this is a real human. And so, and so we, we, that'd be hard to fake. Yeah. Right? It really was. Entrepreneur. Yeah. So we, you know, we kind of took that, we met each other and we were like, we vibed so well. And then at the end of that seminar, we said, Hey, we're putting together this mastermind for product-based people. And it's funny because the mastermind was what our signature course is now, which was called multi-stream machine. Cause we were teaching on the idea that product-based businesses need to have multiple streams of revenue coming in. Right. Um, because if one gets knocked out, AKA like the pandemic shut down in person and certain things um, that you had other, other platforms to thrive on. And so, yeah, so we pitched it. We were in the hallway, people were signing up. We had our first three month mastermind and then we started the podcast a few months later. So, and the rest is history because now we are bound to each other for life. (laughs) (laughs) Literally two halves of the brain and, you know, actual business partners now. Yeah. New York and Iowa, you're coming from totally different perspectives here. So yeah. Uh, so this uh, mastermind you put together, was this uh, for brand new e-commerce people or, or product-based businesses, I should say, or uh, was it like a mastermind of like a lot of high-level people and you were just kind of organizing it, this? It was across the board for sure. Um, we really, I mean, it was people that wanted to know more about building a business. So we realized very quickly what a blend that life and business is. And so we really... Um, it was a small group mastermind. It was something like 10 people and there was a husband, wife in there, a different partnership. I mean, we really taught them how to understand their numbers, taught them how to focus on the things that sold well, but also to, you know, put that into more than one revenue stream. So we really looked at business as a holistic, you know, from a holistic point of view from the very beginning. And it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, we are in such different places and different perspectives because, you know, funny, the fun of funny and slash fun fact about us is that we actually are opposites on the Myers-Briggs. We don't share a single letter. So we are true opposites. And, (laughs) but we had kids the same age. We loved product business. We, we luckily were not catfishing each other, you know, which could (laughs) have taken a a more, you know, a different story. Um, But we, as we became business partners, we realized we really were attracted to each other for a reason. You know, we had the same values and different things. So it ended up working out. Um, so, um, but we do definitely, you know, come from different perspectives a lot of times, which I think is what makes us powerful because in terms of our audience, they get two types of people. So they get to choose who they, you know, like some people will say, I'm the Jacqueline, I'm the Mina, you know, because of the way we, we approach things, I think from an operation we the gaps a lot of times, yeah, we know how to go back and forth. And we, like Mina said, we have the same values, which I think is important no matter what, like who's on your team, who you work with one-on-one, um, you know, partnerships, but whatever because, business you have too, like yeah. people build businesses and they're like, Ooh, what product should I sell? But if you have no value or no passion or no, you know, like you have no feeling towards it, then it's going to be hard to sustain, you know? So the value has to be there for anything. I've been involved in a lot of partnerships, like some that just never got started. And then one that went for over two years. Uh, and that one ultimately didn't end because there was any kind of uh, conflict between us. It was more just like, this is not a great market to be in. Um, but we had completely different skill sets. I was the, the marketing and sales and social media side, and he was into robotics and engineering. He was like building the products and doing the 3D printing and completely different skill sets, uh, but both very hard workers. I'd like recommend a book to him. He'd like read it by you know, two days later. And like, we were both fully committed, uh, throwing our own money at it. So we had a lot of the same values, but completely different skill sets. Um, and partnerships really get a bad rep for, for not working a lot of times. And I do feel like it it probably is because they come to the table with the same skill sets. And then now it's just like, whose marketing idea are we going with? And neither of us understand, uh, neither of us want to do the numbers or, um, you know, be the CFO of the company. (laughs) 
true because not me, <laughs> right? Me and his partners with our husband. So he does the numbers and then I do the numbers, yeah. which is funny because the way our brains work, like I technically shouldn't be the one. So I have in the two numbers. partnerships essentially. Yeah. You know, Mina and I both had partners prior to meeting each other in other businesses that we had that actually didn't work out very well. So I think yeah. from, and they it, worked out well enough, but didn't, it wasn't like yours where it's just, let's go our separate ways. It was like, I don't know. It's kind of heartbreaking a little bit because yeah. it was that person for me, it was, she, um, divorced her husband and then left town and all these different things. <laughs> but I felt like, you know, like what, you know, what happened here, you know? And, um, I don't know. It's like heartbreaking. It, you kind of have to grieve that partnership a little bit. So, um, but at the same time, it made me prepared for the fact that all partnerships are different. And I learned so much from being in that partnership that now I get to kind of reap the rewards of having had other partnerships, I feel like. But I do think from a partner perspective is if you're try- like a lot of times I used to say, cause I also have another business, which is um, called designer consulting co-op where I've launched over a thousand startup fashion brands. So I designed, developed, produced, and then now I just consult. So with that, I used to think as a designer, as an actual designer and a true visionary, I used to think if I just got a business partner that knew more about business, I would have a better partner, right? I thought that there was a gap I needed to fill. And I remember telling this to one of my male clients who was paying me $10,000 a month, by the way. And he goes, you don't think you're good at business? Why would I be paying you $10,000 a month to help me build my business? And that was a big sort of mindset shift for me. And I think if we're trying to find people to fill holes or gaps, and we think that partnerships are the way to do it, that's not necessarily true. You can hire for that. You can hire fractional CFOs. You can hire fractional CMOs. You can hire a fractional CEO if you really want, but I think it's the alignment of the value you bring to your customer, your product. It's you like each other. Um, there's, there's that blend of like Mina said, like filling the holes. Um, but it's not that I don't feel good enough at this. I need to go find a partner, but rather both of us together and our brains together created the beautiful thing that is the product boss. And we wouldn't have done that without each other. And you have to respect the partnership too. You know, I think a lot of people, they go in, they're like, I'm going to partner with these people or, you know, more one person or more than one person. And they're like, this person's going to do this. And this person's going to do this. There's all these different roles and that's great. You know, everybody has their own role, but you have to leave that person to it in a lot of ways. Like you have to trust them, but also put that partnership first and foremost, like with me and my husband, I don't micro, I don't even, you know, I don't even macro manage him. (laughs) Like good luck. Yeah. It's literally like, I just trust you to do it, you know? And, um, and, and then he brings his own skill sets and everything like that. But if there's something that we, um, you know, are against each other on, then we just, you know, allow the space for it to be where we're going to put our partnership first. And this other thing doesn't matter as much, you know, because at the end of the day, the biggest thing that will destroy any business is literally the partnership, you know? So, so is your marriage in S corp? Um, it is an L both businesses are LLCs. Her doing marriage Texas. Isn't the businesses. Yeah. The okay. businesses, I, but kidding, we are actually equal members of, yeah. Yeah. Are you of, saying just your marriage with your husband or do you have actually have like a business partnership oh. with him? Oh, I do. He's a half owner of low labels. Okay, so, you know, the Amazon it. business I was okay. talking about. But that'd be great if yeah. I could hire my husband within our marriage. Be like, No, no. I'd rather hire him under me and have yeah. that. I could boss him around, which would yeah. be ideal, but you know, that's actually a true partnership where we're employees of the business, you know, um, as well as 50, 50 owner. And then same with myself and Jacqueline, right? We are 50, 50 owners of the product boss, you know, education essentially. Yeah. Partnerships, uh, you can obviously just, uh, do as much as you can for trying to meet new people and find people online that could be this very, uh, th- this fit that is very hard to find because you have to be compatible in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, but like a marriage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, there's almost like only the, the, the only advice there is just like, go to a bunch of business conferences, stay active online, actually be, uh, meeting people and, uh, you know, prospecting who these people might be. Um, otherwise a lot of times, solo uh, solo proprietorships or, you know, sole, sole proprietorships are, the way that you have to go. A hundred percent and hire who you need to, because not every, you should not be partners with any, like you should not 
your default should not be like what Jacqueline said to find a partner that fills the gaps. You can hire people do that, do that. You can go project-based. You can, you know, I know that we have this ideal partnership in a lot of ways, but I think that people look to us and they think that we're going to tell them, go find yourself a partner when that is not necessarily the advice that we give because you giving a cut of your business is, is hard to sustain in a small business world. You know, if I were to start another business. I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't say I need to go find a partner to start a business. Um, unless it, the magic was truly created by the two of us. Like this is our child. The product boss mm-hmm. was conceived by both of us. So kind of like you and your partner, if we, if I met someone we vibed and we started powwowing we're like this is a fantastic idea let's both like work on it but I wouldn't say like I want to start a business and I have to go find a partner to help me execute so that's my take on the partnership makes sense and I think a lot of new business owners would like to have a partner to start it just because they're having trouble getting started uh but that uh yeah isn't that's what coaches are for and podcasts Mm -hmm. and education and hiring the right people you know I think that's the thing like let's not think through giving up a portion of your business. Cause we've, I've had a successful business for like 18 years. I started at 26 and it was by myself, you know? So, um, but yeah, it just depends. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. So uh, let's move on to some uh, sales tips that you have for the the listeners out there. We got product sellers across the board, tons of artists, um, tons of clothing designers. uh, A lot of people work in farmers markets and things even. Uh, What are like the first steps when you're working with someone who's maybe been in business for a couple of years? They've got inventory down. They got their shipping process down. They got all that. They've gotten some sales. Uh, but they've never really had like a 50K or 100K plus year. They're really just uh, trying to get into that next level. Uh, where do you recommend they go into like at paid ads, organic marketing? Like what's uh, some of the first steps? We'll go one at a time here if you want to go first, Jacqueline. Sure. Um, that is probably one of, that's probably the biggest part of our community are um, people who are making on average, they're making under $8,000 a month probably. So their goal is to get to eight to $10,000 a month. So they could hit their first six figure year. Um, and obviously this would work for anybody at any level. Cause we have to scale, but those people who haven't hit 50,000 yet, you know, like I believe fully that each person could be making at least a minimum of $2,000 a month, right? Whether they're selling on Etsy at a farmer's market, you have to show up what it takes though. And this is the premise of Nina and my signature course, which is called multi-stream machine is it takes multiple streams of, of revenue. So have you ever heard the saying that a millionaire is a millionaire because they have seven streams of income? Have you ever heard that? Yeah. So it's like, you know, they've got, they've got their, their salary and then they have money invested in like stocks and they get that money and maybe they have money in real estate and they get that money. And so there's different places that their, their income is coming from. So we believe the same for product-based businesses, where if you're only solely reliant on a single platform for sales, just a farmer's market, right or just trying to sell online or just trying to sell on Instagram or just selling on um, wholesale to retailers, um, you only have that one stream of revenue. So we really try and help our students get to adding at least a second stream of revenue a second stream of um, income, because that then, if you could get that to $2,000 a month, at least now you're making $4,000 a month. And we call it the snowball of sales. So, but we also pull it all the way back to, we don't ask you to take all of the products you've ever made and get them on every single sales channel, but rather what are the best sellers that you know that you have in your business? And that's what you scale your business with, which is your best seller. So I think a lot of times product-based people think if I just make more products, more people are going to buy, but it's not the case. That's going to drain your revenue. That's going to, I mean, Mina, do you want to pick up on this part? Yeah, it was, it was what I was going to get into because to parlay off of, you know, the multiple streams of revenue, you know, with being multi-stream machine, but first you have to start with what are you going to become known for? Right. So a lot of times people 
they're testing and trying a lot of things during that time. And then they realize certain people are gravitating towards this thing. They love my animal friends, baby bottle labels. That's just an example, right? Okay. So in, in my mind, if sometimes if you're a small business owner, you're like, I'll just make all the labels under the sun. I'll please everybody, you know, but really if I know that they love animal friends, baby bottle labels, what could I do? Could I make a different design? Could I, um, you know, make a two pack, like variations of it? How could I repeat and refine my bestseller and make it go onto more platforms, right? So I could take it from Amazon and put it on Etsy. I can take that from Etsy and sell it to schools, perhaps wholesale, you know? So you're really taking something that works, but making it, um, repeatable. So instead of trying too many things as a small business, your resources, your time, your money, your energy can only go towards so many places. And if you're in that pivotal moment of trying to get from 50,000 to hundred thousand, hundred thousand to 250,000, you have to put most your eggs into what works. So we say that 20% of your products will make up 80% of your revenue, but how can you, you know, compound that you add on more revenue streams. So once you find a winning product, that's already hard enough to do. Uh, it's easier to take a winning product and uh, put it onto different sales channels and know it's going to work rather right, than- Right, and create variations of that Instagram particular bestseller. Works. So I'll just make you know, more products. And I feel like a lot of them do that because they're yeah. on one channel and they're like, well, they my organic audience has already seen this, uh, this new painting from me. So, I mean, I'm selling to the same people, obviously I would just need a new painting. That's why a lot of times like a, a new product, uh, becomes that move. Uh, if someone does not have a certain stream of revenue, uh, or traffic source, I guess here, is there one that it's like, if you don't have that one, that's always the first one. Um, I don't think there's the one, it just depends on what you are able to do and what your capacity is. So it depends. Like if you are manufacturing product, you have minimums, you're getting hundreds and hundreds of pieces. That's a different sort of tactic than if you're an artist and you're making paintings like one-off paintings. Um, or if you're a maker and you want to sell on Etsy and you kind of, you know, you're crafting, you're doing one of a kind. So I think it depends on your capacity. Can you build a website that has a great user experience? Do you know how to get the marketing link, the traffic to that website? If not, because that's one of the hardest things to do. Like we can't just throw up a website and pray that the God, like if you build it, they're not going to come, right? You need the content, you need the marketing, you need to attract the right customers. So that's why we see a lot of success for people that will use a platform like Etsy or they'll sell wholesale first and they'll get into retailers. Um, they will, maybe they'll be on Amazon and they'll scale a product on Amazon or they'll go to a farmer's market. Um, so it's not one in particular, but it's what's your capacity. Like, are you, what can you drive traffic to? Cause I'll tell you, if you put a website up on the great wide web, like, um, you're a star in the universe and absolutely no one's looking for you. Like you're not going to compete with bed, bath and beyond, or, you know, Yankees candles or whatever. And going back to the, just, I want to get clear on what you said about the painting. Paintings are a little bit different. Like a painting is different because they're individual pieces of art. Um, that's if you're reproducing it, but you might say I have a painting and people love my landscapes, then do more landscapes, right? Do variations of sizes of the landscapes. But when we talk about variations, it's like, let's say you are a bath and body company. And um, I actually just coached a student on this this morning. Um, she sells a farmer's market. She sells direct to consumer. She knows her cedar wood scent is her number one scent. She wants to get on Amazon. So it's like, you don't get all of your products on Amazon. You don't even get all your bestsellers on Amazon, but we know Cedarwood sells all day, every day at your other platforms. So then let's put Cedarwood product onto Amazon, because if we give too many variables, then we don't know if it's the platform or if it's the product. So, um, that's, and it might be, okay. It might be variation. So Cedarwood does really well. I sell it in candles and soap. Maybe I'll add a Cedarwood room spray. Right. So you stick with Cedarwood. We don't try and like come up with all new ideas and think we're going to attract more people. I know this depends on the specific product type, but in the situation where maybe someone is already good at the offline selling, they've been doing farmers mm. markets for years. I worked with someone recently who's run a soap company for like 27 years. Uh, so he's done a ton of different farmers markets and things like that. And then now he's like, I just want some kind of, you know, passive income online. So do I do Amazon? Do I do Instagram? If I do Instagram, do I do ads? Do I do organic? Uh, but he's also coming to the table uh, 
without the Canva experience, without the YouTube or video experience, without even, you know, really knowing how reels and, and everything works, like getting an Instagram for the first time. Um, with that person who's trying to come online, what do you think is the easiest way? Um, and I, I know there's probably some gray space, so feel free to address that, but uh, for, for that person to choose how they uh, start their online sales. So none of that is passive. Derek. Yeah, I, I know, say, I know. I did no air quotes there. Yeah. Yes. For the podcast listeners, I did the air quotes. I'm just saying yeah. that's, that's what they said. <laughs> right. So when you're thinking about, you know, so the nice thing about being in person, being in those trade shows is that you get instant feedback from customers, right? So that's why uh, oftentimes people start there and they're like, this is actually pretty easy. Even as an introvert, I can actually sell these people because they're in person. They catch my vibe. They, um, I get their instant feedback. I see their body language. It's hard to transfer that online. That's what people don't understand though. though there's a worldwide web, you know, the worldwide market that you have access to so many people transferring emotion, transferring, um, selling ability, transferring, you know, that experience, you have to cultivate that online. It's not as easy as being as in person. You don't get instant feedback. You don't actually get to see that person walk physically in and gravitate towards a certain product. That's just an no, example, right? Yeah. Yep. Smell the smoke, hold the soap, see how the soap feels, all these different things. So, you know, one of the ways that you, the, the first way that you would do that is simply by the, the, you know, no like, and trust, no like, and trust. So no is the brand awareness. So what Jacqueline was saying about, you know, do people even know you exist? Do they, you're a star in the universe. Do they even know that you exist? So for you, it would, it would be creating content and pushing your own traffic. So even as Jacqueline was giving the example of the, the cedar wood um, candle or whatever it was, was it the candle, the cedar wood smell, you have to push your own traffic. That's the way online uh, algorithms work. You can't just, none of it is passive. That's one fallacy that people need to get out of their brains is that I'll just get online and this is going to be so much easier, but the transition to it is quite difficult, you know, because you have to, maybe you smell the soap, you talk about the undertones and the notes of it smelling, you have other people try it, you send out samples, you know, there's different things that you can get to transfer that experience. But the first step of that is the no and the no like, and then trust of them getting their wallet out. And that is is uh, creating content, you know, calendar-based content, conversational content, cornerstone content are the three C's that we go by. And you keep um, re-engaging those people um, around your product, you know, not just specific features, but what do they get when they smell that, you know, lilac soap? What do they feel? What emotions come up? And then you try to transfer that feeling. So uh, with uh, more simple products like the candles and the soaps, uh, how often are you leaning towards Amazon FBA being the channel that you start before um, Instagram and Facebook ads? Well, here's the deal. If you have the budget to do ads, you know how to do ads, you hire an agency, they understand e-commerce because e-commerce is very specific because the difference between selling a digital course versus a physical product is you have cost of goods, right? You have shipping. So it is more expensive to run ads because we actually have to make the goods and that costs money and then sell it. So depending on what your, like your cost is per customer acquired, that's going to check out and actually buy the product. Um, you may not make any money on your product. So we have students that we've worked with that have made a million dollars in their first year of business because they came in and they, they did ads, but they had the inventory. They had a scaled business that they had manufacturers. They could sell a hundred thousand units in their first year. Right? So if you, if you know that you can, you have the money for ads for the ad spend and also to go into production and ship and the end cart value is greater than the cost to acquire the customer, then I think ads are great. The tricky part is when it is a soap, a candle, that kind of thing. If, if you're handmade business, let's just say you're just in your basement pouring your candles, you mean there's no point in running ads if you cannot keep up with the capacity of running like a really successful ad campaign, right? There's no way they can pour enough candles in their basement by themselves. So that's when we really have to think about production and scalability. Um, Amazon would be the same way. Amazon, you have to have a better, like you can't just be a maker that makes kind of one-offs or small batch. It has to have, you can't run out of product on Amazon. There has to be manufactured product that's shelf stable that can sit 
at Amazon and be fulfilled by Amazon. So when you're talking about your friend being more passive, I would say Amazon could be more passive if all you have to do is manufacture um, your product, you get it to Amazon. Amazon does the selling and fulfilling. You monitor your ads and create that content. Cause Mina doesn't have a huge presence online, like on Instagram or even a huge thing with her email list because the majority of her business is done on Amazon, but they work really hard on the, the paper clicks, the ads, the, the, the momentum that she got into the business. So I think why our customers tend to be solopreneurs tend to make more of their products than like outsource or source or produce. So we tend to get them more into the organic realm of customer acquisition than straight up running ads. So it just depends on where you're at. How much would you say uh, finding uh, some kind of supplier advantage uh, where it comes to quality as well as cost is really make or break it for a lot of e-commerce businesses? I mean, it's huge. If you can find the right supplier and people should think about suppliers as their partners, right? That if you can find the right manufacturer, co-packer, whatever it is, then um, it, it serves as a partnership for you to be able to have this proprietary knowledge that nobody else has, right? And then, um, but most entrepreneurs will skip that step of getting the proper quotes, getting, interviewing a whole bunch of people, getting the right suppliers, testing them out, buying the samples, and then they quit. But usually it's not till your 15th one that, you know, you're able to like, okay, this is the one, right? So I think that it is super beneficial for the people to do their, for everybody to do their due diligence, pull as many quotes as you can, interview as many people as you can and decide which ones, you know, maybe you, maybe they have a better customer service rep that's dedicated towards you, like the account exec, you know, or maybe they're closer to you in proximity and you can hop in to see, you know, what's going on, or maybe they're family owned and you're helping a family owned business. So there's lots of different things that matter to each one of us, but I do think that, you know, in the small business world, having something like a good supplier, especially in this time during supply chain um, shortages and things like that, um, that having open a communication with somebody that you really trust is really beneficial too. And I come from traditional manufacturing. So from the fashion world, fashion apparel, it's from the point of me designing, having a pattern maker, sourcing the materials, so sourcing the fabric and the trims and the buttons and the zippers, getting those and taking those to a cutter. And then the person who's going to sell them. So, you know, I did most of our manufacturing in Los Angeles in the fashion district, but that's like piece by piece by piece. Some people may go to Alibaba and say, I found some swimwear manufacturer. I'm going to tell them the designs I want and they just ship it to me finished. Right. So it's all a different level of what you're doing. Are you sourcing a product that's a finished product and you're just labeling it under your name? You know, are you inventing something? Are you creating all the components to it? Is it an idea you have, you have a one-stop shop to develop the product for you. Um, so it just also depends on your budget because apparel lines can be hundred to $300,000 to like develop initially minimum, um, before you ever make your first sale. Uh, so it really just depends on different people, the different types of businesses they want to grow and scale. Um, one of my initial clients was me undies. They have a huge like subscription service for underwear, right? It was two guys with sketches that were just trying to make things in LA until they, they built it into what it is now. So, um, it just depends on where you are in your business journey and what you want to create, which is why Mina and I speak as many paths to profit because everybody has a different realm or sense or want for their business growth. Um, and it just depends on where you're starting. Do you have some sourcing tips as far as uh, websites, like apart from Alibaba, AliExpress, the main ones that people would go to, um, some good places where you would start if you're making a new company and looking for a new sourcing agent? It's that's hard to give um, because we, like I said, we typically, it's all across the board. So a lot of times we'll help people who are maybe manufacturing domestically because there's so many products, there's so many different sources you can use. You can work with, you know, a sewer in LA, or there's like might be a candle maker in Massachusetts or a sock person in the, the Carolinas, um, or you go to Alibaba and you can counter source in Asia. It really is something, or in, in India or wherever, but it really is something that you would need to probably find your own sourcing agent. There's not like a one-stop shop for that. Um, and it depends on the industry that you're in too. So if there are trade shows, like sourcing trade shows specific to the type of product category you want to get into, that would probably be one of the best places to go to resource. 
are you trying to uh, source it within the United States primarily if you, primarily if you can, or do you have any rules like that? Or is it really just every, just consider every option and then weigh all pros and it's cons? A, it's up to the business owner. Some people mm-hmm. are adamant about keeping it domestic. Some people don't care and they want the cheapest price point, or there are not things that are able to be made in the States anymore. They're just not here. There's the manufacturing has left. So it yeah. really depends again on the business you want to grow and what is important to you. So are you starting, if you just had a, a brand new idea for an apparel company, would you start that by contacting a sourcing agent and then letting them do it from there? Or would you contact uh, 15 to 50 different you know, I think uh, before you decide to come up with a business, you definitely need to research the industry, look at the people in the market, see if there's a gap, maybe come up with a, some sketches, figure out how much it's going to cost you and create a minimum viable product to see if the market is willing to buy, um, you know, before there's much sourcing that can happen. Um, I think it takes research, right? Are you, could you, are you feeling, uh, you know, the biggest question you're answering is, is why, you know, do you see a market? Is it something that you're solving a problem? Is it a need or want and desire that you see that's not being met? You know, so that way it's not like you're just coming to the world with a product that you want to come up with. It's that you have a market that is willing to buy it. If you had uh, for sure proof that you got a market and, and everything looks good, um, are you still going to a sourcing agent to just Are you do asking all that? for a friend in quotes? <laughs> Maybe they seem super so this person, I know, right? No, no, yeah. I'm like, like, I feel you, like you're good. You're good. No, yeah. Just answer the question. We're almost done here. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> um, it's there. So if you know that there's the market fit, you do definitely need to have some sort of prototyping or sketches or development. So depending on what that is, like I would hire, and that's why I think my consulting business was so successful because I'm a fashion designer and an apparel and accessories designer. And so people would come to me to concept, right? So you don't build, you don't go to a contractor and say, Hey, I want you to build me a four bedroom house with a Mediterranean look or a farmhouse style look go right. You, you start with, there's an architect, right? There's somebody who finds the materials. There's like an initial concept. Maybe you pull images from the world and you're like, I like this kind of look and I want, this is the wall stucco and all that. Right. So I think before you ever can approach a sourcing person, you need, and I don't know if this is the case, but you need to have like the idea fleshed out. And that's what I would do more locally or domestically or with an expert that can draw it for you, can um, I was developing a golf bag for somebody, right? I'm not a golf bag designer. So we went and sourced someone who worked within the golf industry to design it. Cause the infrastructure of this golf bag was like, there's so much that happens inside of it. Right. So, and then we needed the 3d printer designer to create this inside part to it that we wanted to create. So we created those prototypes here, worked back and forth on it. And then when we flushed it out, that's when you could take it overseas. Plus side note, before you take any sort of new invention things overseas, know that even if you have like a patent here or a trademark in the U S it's not nationally or globally recognized. So you also have to be careful about who you show certain things to, and that you have protection in those other countries. So I think it goes, it's very dependent on what you're creating, but you want to have something that you've designed, created, even if it was, I'm just going to go back to candles or perfume. Um, you know what the scents are, like you've mixed it here, you know what it is. And then you can send that to a sourcing agent, or you can send that to a, um, an overseas contact and then they counter source it for you. If that makes sense. Yeah. And you can go that route. You know, I think I'm such a firm believer in, in bootstrapped and grassroots. If it was me and I had an idea, you would need to create like a reference product. So meaning like if I want to create a hoverboard is the usual example I give. Well, a hoverboard doesn't exist. What does it look like? Okay, I'm going to chop off these wheels on the skateboard and I'm going to, you know, I don't know, create this you, Marty McFly? tail fin. I don't know. <laughs> coming up with these ideas for the kids that's from back to the future yeah and and then i'm going to create a reference product you know just like remember the gloves that didn't have any fingers is the example that jacqueline gives people weren't like can you give me fingerless gloves you know how non-visual people are sometimes they're like i can't see it okay let me find a glove and cut off the fingers oh now i see it 
right? So you create a reference product and then you source it yourself. Because if you're trying to, as a small business owner, you could go straight to a sourcing agent, of course, it's going to cost you money. But if you are unsure about whether or not that product is going to work, I would try to figure out how to create that hoverboard myself. I'd go to a scrapeboard manufacturer. I'd go to um, a paddleboard manufacturer. I'd be like, hey, could you make this, this fin, you know, hoverboard that I made this reference product and they could tell me yes or no. And you could start to figure out what the industry looks like and what is involved in it, you know, and then you could take it to a sourcing agent potentially. I will let my friend know. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> let, let him know. <laughs> uh, speaking of patents, uh, how uh, necessary are they uh, for people that have like completely unique ideas or people that are like this idea? It's like, uh, you know, it's unique, but it's maybe they feel like they don't want to get a patent on it because it's so expensive and go through that it whole is. process. How uh, yeah, dangerous it is, is it? It depends on what it is. So like I, when I, I created a, a business called Cuffs Couture, this is actually what brought me and I together, which was a wearable wrist wallet, but it was, for, it was fancy. It wasn't um, like a running wallet. It was to go out dancing, let's say. So it was fancy looking. And I remember what I did is I paid, I hired an attorney and I did a patent research. So it was like $1,200. And we looked into the patent before I ever like tried to go full force with it. And it was like, well, this is going to be tricky to patent. There's a lot of versions of it. Yours isn't different enough, that kind of thing. So I was like, fine, I'm just going to be first to market and I'm going to blow it out of the water. So it was full force, like Kleenex, right? There's Kleenex and then there's nose tissue or whatever they call it now. Right. So people still might call them Kleenex, but it's just the idea of being first to market and being known. So I think it depends. We work with a lot of people who have created patents. The two companies actually that I referenced that have made a million dollars with paid ads, they paid and they had, they have patentable products. Um, and those will be upheld right? Until someone makes a variation of it in some way, and then they get to take that to court or not. So I think it just depends on what the actual product is. And I was, I would always just do the research. If you feel like it needs to be patented. I had a client that made a dress with a zipper in the back and she wanted to patent the zipper in the back of a dress, not possible, right? You can't just, you can't patent everything, but I would say get an attorney, um, to give you feed, like a patent attorney to give you feedback on it. But I would say it's not necessary to, for you to move forward either, you know, like patents, there's lots of hoops and it's an investment. So it's a dedication thing for sure. So if you're really far in your journey, I would definitely, I would definitely go by what Jacqueline said, go into the market, become known for it. You know, you carve your little niche there, um, and then get a patent if you need to, but you don't need to, uh, get a patent before you start anything. We are going to say though, we're not attorneys. So please yeah. consult an attorney. Right. We're not attorneys, <laughs> we know nor are we accountants. <laughs> this is like the disclaimer we always get. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. Even, even if you get the patent, like you're saying, you still have, like, if you see a, a competitor come up that you believe violates the patent, now you have to take them to court. So that's a whole other deal. So you really got to have a, see a lot of potential with this product to, yeah. for it to be worth it. And it's about $10,000 minimum to get that patent. And then you have to pay a patent designer, right? So somebody has to draw it out for you and you go back and forth with the attorney. So, you know, the two products that we know are patented, it's great that they're patented. Like the type of product that they are, they deserve to be patented. They are true inventions. Um, so I think it's the idea of like, but the other hundreds of thousands of people we've worked with do not have patents. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> so they're the few that got patents, right. you know, and they're inventions, I think. That's yeah, why. for sure. Last uh, question that I'll ask uh, kind of on that note is how much do you think, uh, how much opportunity exists for people that want to private label still versus invent their own original product? The opportunity. Yeah. Um, for like, you know, it, it might be hard to just drop ship without messing with the product at all anymore. Right. Um, yeah. or even just throw a, just a logo on it. Um, a lot of those have been taken up, Would you say that there's still, um, you can still really look around and eventually find some easy private label opportunities, um, some one-off products, or do you really have to build a brand and maybe even invent something totally original nowadays? 
I think short-term, a lot of people are probably still private labeling, but long-term, you won't be able to stand out long in the market. You know, there's always people that are going to be coming into the market if it is indeed successful, but private labeling for all of you that are listening is essentially taking your importing something typically from China, let's say, and putting your logo on it. Now it's great to have, but you don't have a lot of control, you know, because you don't, you don't manufacture yourself. You don't, you know, you're waiting for things to come into port. And even if you're manufacturing, yes, you at least have a closer relationship to that manufacturer. Also the private label supplier, you know, that manufacturer, they're private labeling for tons of other people. So they're private labeling for your competition. And as we move further into, um, you know, the economy, the way it is now, people are really more thoughtful with their dollar. We know that since the pandemic, they really think about where they're spending their dollars. Is it a small business? Is who is, you know, people buy from people. And so it can't simply be the product with a a logo slapped on it. It has to be much more than that. There has to be some sort of perceived value or reason that they're buying. And so that forces you to go into being a brand, you know, and, and being more than the product. I, I'll give, for example, um, those wool dryer balls. Have you seen those? Um, the, so like, wool, um, wool. I don't know. So some of you out there it's might have eco-friendly. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. Okay. Got so it. there was a point where people were like, no more dryer sheets and let's these wool dryer balls. And somebody started importing them because they're not made domestically. There's not in the U S a manufacturer for these, as far as I know, wool dryer balls, they have to be imported. So somebody had come up with it. And then this was something I actually listened to on another podcast of a woman who created a business that she did that. She imported dryer balls. She slapped her, her business name on it. She created it. She sold it on Amazon. She grew the business and actually she sold the business once it hit a million dollars. And she's constantly, um, uh, private labeling, basically growing it on Amazon and then selling the businesses that she creates. Cause she sees things in the market that she can act on quickly, execute, create revenue from it and then sell through. So if that's the kind of business you're looking for, great right? Like it's not a brand you're building. It may not even be like a long-term business unless it's your starter product. And in your head, you're like, you know, I'm going to come out with all these eco-friendly home goods, right? I'm going to start with these dryer balls because it's my easiest path into the market, which I'm all for. We've told students this all the time too. Like, well, maybe you can go source that product. It's being made out there. Don't worry about you having to find all the sewers and the fabric and all the things domestically go source it, make it easy. And then if you can scale that, then you can start to change it, make other products, like expand the brand. So I think it, again, goes back to what your goal is for your business. Are you trying to make money, build something fast, sell a lot of it and then be done? Or do you want a supply chain is not having anything be fast. And I will tell you everybody (laughs) that did that years ago in Amazon coming from the Amazon world, it is crazy saturated. Okay. So don't think that that's a strategy that even works anymore of you finding a gap, looking at keywords, being like, Oh, I'm going to source dryer balls. Those seem to be doing great. And I'm going to slap them on Amazon. And then all of a sudden it's going to rain money. Those are not the times anymore. Just like on Instagram, good luck getting some views on your reels, you know, good luck, everybody. algorithms (laughs) change everything. And so do terrible sellers. So, uh, you know, there comes a time when the competition comes in and they ruin a lot of things. So Amazon used to be this very great world where you could make money, you could fill the gap, you could fulfill things for our customers. Then people were like, oh, I'm going to make a crap ton of money really, really quickly and give poor quality things. And then now, you know, it's a lot harder than it used to be. So it's not like where it's like, oh, dryer balls, I'm going to make a million dollars like this woman. This is not the time anymore. I do think that in order to stand out in any sort of environment, you need to create some sort of brand or perception of value in that brand in order for customers to buy. And Amazon is leaning towards that. So for example, they favor brands on there and you get to do enhanced brand content and videos and things. They don't want those people that are just like, I want to make a quick buck you know, doing this because it doesn't appease their customers and Amazon first and foremost will always go customer first. Can they get it in a day? Can they get it in two days? You know, even the, I know of people who've made multi-millions on Amazon. And if they went into guidelines, they were never able to recoup their account, even though they were making Amazon tons of money. You know why? Because it's always customer first and it always will be customer first. 
you know, so if you get reported or if you go against guidelines or something, then it doesn't matter how much money you've made them. So I think that for all of you starting a business, I'm going back to what I said in the very beginning of you have to be passionate about whatever business that you are bringing to the world because you have to show up for that business. So if you have no story, no connection to dryer balls, it's going to be really hard being known as the dryer ball company that you love and put show up for and continually build and blood, sweat, and tears. You know, I think that that is what you have to really think about is like, why are you starting that particular business too? It's hard to pivot without loss of enthusiasm with yeah. every failure. Uh, you know, it doesn't work on Amazon. You're like, why am I even doing these dryer balls anyways? <laughs> Just as I thought, no one cares about it, <laughs> right? You have to be like, I, I gotta still let the world know about this, though. The dryer, yes, ball. and repeatedly, it's like, over and over. And it's and really though, it's not like because if you're like, oh, I'm gonna just make a quick buck on these, then if it's hard, right? But you have to have a passion for why these, right? Like, what is it doing? Is it the environment that's like you know something that's really important to you? And you're like, I'm mm-hmm. gonna keep pushing. So you is know, it um, where the wool comes from with a particular sheep. I think it really is like certain sheep, like Scottish sheep have baby fur. I don't know, Again, but you know, it could take, be that don't, we are not professional. <laughs> I am not a zoologist, <laughs> nor <laughs> geographer. I'll put a disclaimer in the description. <laughs> don't worry. Um, I do want to just add on to what Mina said, just as like a conclusion to that is, uh, we had a mentor last night say on one of our calls, um, that the biggest brands that we know have a human face attached. So if you think about Facebook and Meta, you know, it's as we like to call him Marky Mark Zuckerberg. If you think about Steve Jobs and Apple, you think about Richard Branson and, you know, Virgin. So when we think about, or it cosmetics and Jamie Kern Lima, right. If we're going to go into women and products. Um, so the thing is, is that no matter how much we want to hide behind it, the biggest companies have a human element to it. A lot of times there will be, you know, no, Richard Branson is not flying the plane. Yeah, human element or in Mark, Mark Zuckerberg's case, a robot like human ass person. Don't tell him we said this about him because we appreciate him and his algorithm. He listens to this podcast. <laughs> Oh. Hey, Mark, right. Mark. So there's a, per- <laughs> what we're saying is there's humanization and personification to the brand. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. A lot of people will buy a Tesla and they'll be like, Elon. Yeah. <laughs> like you Elon, know. look, I bought your car. And he's like, don't care. I'm buying Twitter. <laughs> like, yeah. I got the, the Bitcoin car. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. Lots of great stuff. Uh, I know you've got some freebies or something for the audience to yeah. tell me about that. So based on the, the conversation today, I actually think, um, a really great freebie for all of you and for your friend who's figuring out how to grow, uh, his business, um, is the product boss resource guide. So this is full of 308 resources for product-based businesses. So it could be anything from, um, software for, you know, shipping programs, um, packaging and labeling places to source different types of software, because, you know, there is the service-based world, the product-based people need different types of resources. So you can get all of that. If you go to the product boss.com slash resource guide. That's the productboss.com slash resource guide. Well, the listeners loved it. And I think my friend will get some great value out of this when it comes out. Uh, he'll be sure to let you know. Um, but uh, yeah, check out the product boss podcast. If uh, my interview is already out at the point uh, that this comes out, then I will link that in the description. Otherwise I will throw it in there. Um, but you can go check that out as well. Uh, thank you so much for coming on ladies. Thank you Thanks so us. much, Derek.